I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness and sadness. If you don't discuss it, just eats away, eats away, eats away at you. I never talked about it with anybody. The greater damage done to me was keeping the secret. If I can be vulnerable, that'll help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. It makes me sick, literally, physically. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you this story. If I could have known that you and I were alike, I would have had so much more hope. You realize you are not the only one. I think you can feel so supported just by knowing that you're not alone. From WMPG, I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This season, we're revisiting some of our best shows from the past eight years. Today's show is about a topic that's been in the news lately, male sexual violence and rape culture. In 2012, I spoke with violence prevention educator Daryl Fort. Our conversation spanned two episodes, and today you'll hear the first part. You can hear part two on our website, safespaceradio.com. As a trainer, speaker, and curriculum developer, Daryl travels around the country and the world, working with professional athletes, the military, corporate professionals, and government officials. His job is to help them examine how our culture's attitudes about masculinity and femininity perpetuate male violence against women, and how they can counteract these attitudes within their own organizations and beyond. Today's show includes some frank discussion about sexual violence, so parts of it may be difficult to hear. There are no graphic depictions of violence, but we will be discussing two assaults. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Here's my conversation with Daryl Fort. It's important to think about uh, men's violence against women, not just um, in terms of individuals' violence against other individuals, but also seeing the systems that are in place that allow uh, that violence to go on. When you hear about these issues discussed in the public context, it's often about some, you know, it's a sick individual. If there's any real criticism, it would be leveled at all. There's not a lot of discussions about the social systems and the political systems that are in place that either fail to hold individuals fully accountable or don't allow and don't allow us as as peers, as community members, or our institutions to take it as seriously as we should. So to give you a quick example of this, recently I was in Vancouver, British Columbia, working with the British Columbia Lions. It's a, a Canadian football league team. And this I do this often when I'm coming into an area, is to try to do some research about well, what's happening now or happened recently around this issue in that area. Um, it just so happens that in uh, British Columbia, near Vancouver, a place called Pitt Meadows, in the last year there had been a gang rape of a 16-year-old girl outside of a party in a barn, right? So certain things happened around this. Number one, there were multiple bystanders, people who were witness at the time to this assault and stood around and didn't do anything about it. Subsequent to the assault... There was the sort of community chatter about what had happened. As a part of that, some of the folks that were there who were passive bystanders to this assault took pictures. They disseminated the pictures on Facebook. 
there were discussions, obviously, within the community about what had happened. And in the subsequent uh, investigation by the police of this, there was, and this is in the terms of the law enforcement, a code of silence within the community around trying to bring those perpetrators of that to, to some kind of justice. And the justification that the community members, and a lot of these were teenage kids, right? This, this young lady was in high school. Part of the justification involved essentially them holding her accountable for what had happened to her. And that happens not just at Pitt Meadows, British Columbia, but that happens in communities everywhere where essentially women and young girls are held somehow accountable themselves for the violence perpetrated against them. Those attitudes don't come by accident, right? You know, we live in a culture, in a cultural system that teaches each and every one of us the certain cues that involve blaming a victim in that particular case. And if we were able to, and this is part of the challenge and the opportunity of the work I do, if we're able to sort of unpack some of these attitudes and some of these ideas and sort of lay them bare in a format that allows people to have a conver- an honest conversation about them, that allows individuals to sort of interrogate these ideas and attitudes, then the hope is uh, and the opportunity is people have a chance to change their their own attitudes and ultimately their behavior. So why don't we do that together? Let's unpack this. So, Because it seems to me from that story of that gang rape, there's at least two aspects we could talk about. The attitudes that foster these teenage boys thinking it was okay to treat her that way to begin with, A. And then the cultural attitudes that fostered blaming her for it. Mm. And uh, I'd love to spend time thinking together about both. Well, for me... um it's important to think about, as I said, the violence perpetrated by men against women in the culture as sort of echoing an almost uh, class system. So in other words, and I don't think this is sort of new information um, or an idea, is that in the culture, in so many different ways, we teach that women are inferior to men, that masculinity is superior to femininity, and those characteristics that are masculine are superior to those characteristics that are feminine. And what would be right? some examples of those? So thinking about, and we could do this in an exercise, a guy named Paul Kivel, who was a pioneer in this work um, out in, in uh, Oakland, California, Oakland Men's Project way back when, developed a exercise, um, a thought exercise, where he developed gender boxes, right? So we think about a male gender box, a female gender box, what goes into those boxes are stereotypical characteristics, right? And it's important to think about the stereotypes because, you know, number one, uh, stereotype generally understood, but number two, to put a stereotype in the context of that allows for us to think about how we may behave differently. So stereotype of being what it means to be a man. I'm tough, I'm rough, I'm athletic, I'm tall, dark, and handsome. I bet a lot of women, women want to be with me. I'm heterosexual, I'm the decision maker in my relationship, I make a lot of money, I drive fast cars, I don't just drive any car, I drive cars that got muscle under the hood, I drink certain drinks, right, it's alcohol, hard liquor, whiskey and beer, right, and so 
within that context are a set of sort of opposites of that. So if that's considered masculine, then we're defining that masculine based on what it's not. And there's a whole other box that's about femininity. So if we go backwards, we're talking about drinks with umbrellas in it and fruit juice. We're talking about minivans. Um, we're talking about jobs that don't necessarily pay a lot of money. You know, I'm working with uh, maybe little kids. I'm talking about not being the decision maker um, in a very real sense in terms of the relationship. I'm talking about being not being promiscuous, not really being sexual in any uh, holistic way. It means acquiescing in many uh, respects in my interpersonal relationships. So all of these things are defined as feminine, um, stereotypically. And you've got this other list defined as masculine. Well, there's a value system there. And the value system is policed by men, I think, first and foremost, um, but also women in the culture. So if I'm a guy and I'm exhibiting any of these characteristics that are designed as feminine, then, uh, then I'm called a certain set of names, right? Or I'm... Or I'm and that uh, starts very young. And it starts very young, right? So it continues into... In fact, basically almost all the insults for boys in elementary school have to do with being sliding toward that female box, have to do with wimp, sissy, fag. All these things have to do with, like, not being tough enough. Yeah, not being tough enough. and But also being um, what's considered feminine, right? And so whether that means you're acting like a girl or you're acting at what's stereotypically in this construct, the way we imagine gay men to behave, which is feminine, right, then you're considered inferior and you're, you're treated as such or you're policed in that way because you step out of bounds. If I'm the guy and I'm out drinking with my buddies and it's happy hour, but I've made plans with my partner, my wife, my girlfriend, that, you know, we're going to meet somewhere else or we're going to call in an early night and I bow out of that situation, then I run the risk of these guys turning to me and saying, what? Making fun of me, kind of laughing. You know, what? oh, Daryl's whipped in this right. case. And we all know what that means, right? And you don't want to be. Who wears the pants in your family is another coded term. Right, so, so basically what we're saying is if you respect an agreement you had with a woman and prioritize that over being with your guy friends, then that means you're, you are weak, under her control, to be despised in some way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's behavior that's held in, in essentially in contempt and some within the culture. And, and guys will, will essentially joke about it on the one hand, but on the other hand, and this is important to just be honest about, no guy wants to get called out like that. Right. In a very real sense, that's not a reputation that guys want. And guys will behave in ways that they feel like will reinforce their reputation as real men with with other men, but also with women um, as well. And so there are consequences to this. I mean, in, in my way of thinking and others way of thinking, there, there are real consequences to the ways in which we define our roles as men and women in our relationships to one another. And in human history, in human terms, when one group of people has considered themselves superior to another group of people, we can ask ourselves rhetorically, how well have we treated those people if we're in that dominant category? The answer is self-evident. But we have to be willing to challenge ourselves around these different dynamics in the culture because one of the, the, the comebacks to 
um, the example we just gave at Dynamic is that, no, 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 no. We're just about treating people differently, right? Men are different from women, right? What I want to do is reinforce that we're different when, in fact, the understanding within the culture very clearly is one position is superior to another. Even as a woman, I want to get ahead. The thing that I have to do in business and in life and relationships is essentially exhibit masculine characteristics, what we define as stereotypically masculine, right? Right. So what we're saying is that if someone is defined as inferior, one whole category of human beings is defined as inferior, we are that much closer to feeling justified in controlling them and ultimately treating them with, with violence if necessary to get what we want from them. Yeah. Well, s- well, several things follow suit. So we begin to talk about or joke about this group of individuals. In this case, we're talking about women with a certain amount of disdain. So there's sort of stereotypes about what women uh, do or can't do, right? This sort of the idea they're overly emotional, not able to make rational decisions, hard decisions, often sort of feckless and, and kind of uh, airheaded. Flighty. Flighty. Thank you for the word. Flighty. Don't drive very well. You know, aren't very strong emotionally or physically, right, which is very important in this dynamic, right, because physical strength equals domination in a lot of people's estimations. So so all of these things are looked at with a certain level of disdain. So, so we'll just joke about them or we'll use language about women that communicate an inferiority, right? I, I can think of, we talk about the term bitch, right? I can think of when I was younger, not too long ago, even, uh, well, you didn't hear that very much, not in, not in, on TV or on the radio. It was very rude. Yeah, it was considered rude. It, the meaning was understood, right? And, and I would uh, submit the meaning's pretty well understood now. So the idea of either being a bitch or being someone's Especially bitch, that. Right. It directly relates to their sense of their position as being inferior. If I'm someone else, if that's who I am to someone else, then they hold power over me. They own me. I mean, they, that's a, that's a term of ownership. They own me in different ways, right? right. Yet, yet, in one way, that meaning is both understood and also kind of ignored, right? So, in other words, we want to pretend like it doesn't mean anything, like this type of language doesn't mean anything. But it's easier thinking about it in those terms when you so come back to the Pitt Meadows example or it's or another gang rape that happened in the last year and a half in Cleveland, Texas. A couple dozen men gang raping an eleven year old girl. And the same type of such similar type of situation ensued where you had people in the community and even outside focusing on the behavior of this eleven year old girl. You had a very famous New York Times um, story about this where they were interviewing people in that community and essentially the story focused on their criticism or examination of this young girl you know what the type of clothes that she wore uh, the type of uh, attitude allegedly that she exhibited she was over sexual in some ways she was leading in other ways so, th- so think about this for a second so that our holding women accountable for the violence perpetrated against them is so ingrained in the culture 
that for some people it's very easy to immediately go to that place. So help me make that link. So we have this idea where the culture of masculinity and femininity is such that there's this superior-inferior dynamic, as we've been talking about. But how do you make that link to the culture thinking it's therefore okay to hold an 11-year-old girl accountable for being raped even by one person, let alone several? Yeah. Uh, help me help me make that link to how we blame her for that. So you have the dynamic of gender stereotypes and gender roles that play a part in developing this culture, but that also works in combination with other ideas about gender that are taught to all of us within the culture. And one of them involves the expectation that are placed on women to police their behavior around the threat of, of sexual assault. So there, there's a, another exercise that um, has been around in the violence prevention movement for a long time that's designed, uh, I think you've talked about this before, maybe even on your show, but it's important, I think, to reinforce the idea that as part of the daily routine in women's lives, there's an expectation that you will run through a checklist of safeguards, if you will, that that come under the guise of prevention, but they're essentially risk reduction safeguards around your own movement and behavior. So it's about where you go at night, making sure that you're out with friends. You don't put your drink down if you're in some sort of bar or club for fear of somebody might slip uh, a date rate drug in it. You are expected to uh, wear certain types of clothing, right? Now, that means different things to different people, that, but that doesn't keep the question from being asked of a woman who ultimately is assaulted by a man, well, what were you wearing? Or what were you drinking? Or where were you? Why were you in that neighborhood? Why weren't you with somebody? Did you make eye contact with him? Were you making out with him in some way? So what happens is women have this checklist in their minds, but so do we. And so... What hap- and so subsequently, too often, the first things, questions that are asked in the wake of an assault, a rape of a woman by a man is, well, did you complete this checklist? So when that type of attitude becomes sort of normalized, what that does is reinforce the belief that, well, this particular crime might not have either occurred or might not be as serious as it actually was. And so it's just another way of defining the way in which we don't take this type of violence seriously as a culture. And that's very specific. When we talk about these crimes or these abusive behaviors, the abuse, the harassment, it's very specific. We're asking women to be accountable for this in ways that we don't ask other victims of other crimes to be accountable for. And again, it's not it's something that both men and women in the culture learn. And in some ways, this dynamic is reinforced as much by women as it is by men. I mean, this this there's a long history to this, right? This goes back to the Middle Ages when women who were sexually, temp, quote unquote, tempting, you know, were, were accused of being witches. I mean, there's such a long history of blaming the woman for the man's behavior. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, that. The history of of those, the the witch hunts, if you will, is complex um, in and of itself, and it and it involves um, 
both of the dynamics that we've already talked about, this whole idea of gender boxes and fitting into a box, as well as holding women uh, accountable for the victimization against them. On the one hand, a big part of what was going on during that time was, if you think about who was being burned or being accused of being witches, many of them were actually simply independent, right, independent women within a culture that could not and did not want to stand for their land ownership, their independence, their self-entitlement as individuals, something that was supposed to be the province of men, right? So what happens? You develop an idea about them, a negative idea, stereotype. You're a witch. You're promiscuous. You're bad for our community. You're bad for our culture. So we have to hold you accountable for that um, and ultimately re-victimize you. I I have two other ideas I want to run by you, Daryl, about this blaming the woman, blaming the victim of, of a sexual assault. One is I want to think about blaming the victim in terms of how women police each other. And I'm thinking about that checklist that you say, you know, all these ways that we're supposed to keep ourselves safe from sexual assault. And, you know, so if a woman gets assaulted, like, but what was she wearing? Where was she? And I'm thinking that part of why women police each other is because we want to maintain the illusion of safety. I want to believe that if I do everything right, if I wear the right thing, if I go to the right place, if I park my car under the lamppost and I carry my keys and I've got my mace and so-and-so is expecting me, that I'm going to be safe. And so if I can tell myself, and this is not conscious, but if I can tell myself that she only got hurt because she didn't follow that code, then I allow myself to feel like I'm going to be safe as long as I follow it. And so we end up participating in blaming someone, I think, because it it helps me have the illusion that I will be safe. Yeah. And and there's plenty of uh, social, psychological scholarship that supports exactly the dynamic that you described. And there's just the real world experience of so many women who have that thought process encouraged uh, and reinforced. But the cruel hoax about all of that is that women who do all of those different things still become victims of abuse and assault and harassment at the hands of men. And so if we can say that and understand that that's true in the culture, then we need to be talking about something else. We need to be talking about something else. We need to be refocusing this. If it's become rote, routine in the culture for women to think in terms of risk reduction as being the end-all, be-all, as as holding our women accountable for their violence against them if they don't do it. If we know that it happens anyway, we need to be focused on somewhere else. And uh, that's part of the challenge. And when you say somewhere else, you mean we need to be focused on the whole culture that fosters We We need to be focusing on the behavior of perpetrators, and we need to refocus on the behavior of those of us who were bystanders to that perpetration. How and where are we accountable for what's happening? It seems to me that in our culture, when you talked about that box, one of the things you said is that women are not supposed to be sexual, especially in a sort of holistic way. And there's almost a way in which any act that involves sexuality contaminates the woman. So if this woman, this girl, was raped, the fact that she's associated with some kind of sexual act, even though, of course, we know it's a violent act primarily, but... If she's associated with sexuality, then she's already bad. Yeah. I think a lot of that has to do with 
of the need for power and control within the gender order. So if women aren't supposed to actually have agency over their own sexuality in a fundamental way, or certainly in relationship to, to men. So if ultimately, as men, we want to have sexual agency, not just around our own sexuality, but around the sexuality of the women who we might have relations with, then, you know, that needs to be reinforced in different ways, right? It doesn't just happen, right? And in many respects, we don't just give, women don't just give that up <laughs> without some manufactured reason. And in other respects, it, it would be hard to get other people to buy into the injustice of it without a justification. So the victimization of women has to be justified in some way in order for it to exist at the levels that it does. Okay, so, so how is it justified? Yeah, spell it out. What is the justification? So women, look, if I'm just an, if I'm the butt of jokes and ridicule and I'm just a dumb blonde and I can't drive and I'm overly emotional... If I can just be referred to as a bitch or a hoe, if I can routinely just become the object of men's sexual desires in the absence of the other characteristics I have. So a big example of that often we talk about is the is not to pick on Sports Illustrated, but the famous swimsuit issue that occurs at the same time every year during a really big gap in the major sports landscape in the middle of February. And the whole idea behind this in a sports magazine is to bring in fashion models dressed in bikinis for young men and boys and men to basically just sort of ogle and objectify in lieu of perhaps doing some sort of story or stories on female athletes and their accomplishments as athletes. And oftentimes, if they're female athletes involved, then they're presented essentially as lingerie models which is to say it's perfectly okay for me to think of you in these terms and in some ways almost exclusively in those terms. So objectification becomes part of the deal. So then the gender roles, see, see how each one of these sort of foundations to this system reinforces the next or the one before? it. Because if I'm those things, the butt of jokes, if I'm you know part of a kind of derisive, culture around language and an objectification that minimizes me, well, then, of course, I'm going to be minimized when it comes to a professional setting. Well, so the one follows after that is, well, so if you're these things, then your victimization in some level kind of has to be your fault. So, and then we get to the sort of top of this, where we talk about domestic violence, sexual assault, rape, murder. So these are the behaviors that most everyone would in a vacuum, poll themselves as being against. Well, of course I'm against these things. I want to do what I can to confront these crimes, these abusive behaviors. But I think the challenge for us within the movement, the challenge for us as individuals who are parts of communities where this type of violence and abuse occurs, is to have the courage, the forethought, the compassion, Right? And, and the wisdom to be able to say, look, the, these extreme behaviors, as we might put it, don't happen in the rates that they're happening in a culture unless there are other factors involved that support it. That was the first part of a two-part conversation I had with Daryl Fort back in 2012. 
In part two, we talk in more depth about the problem of passive bystanding to sexual violence and what we can all do to speak up and intervene effectively. To hear that episode and any of the many shows we've done on other subjects we hide, go to safespaceradio.com. Also on our website, you can subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And please leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.